came from on here, though. Wait, I'm not getting anything. Uh, okay, he's got a lot to cover for the fucking Jerusalem wall and all the things that he said he was going to cover. So let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, and God, I see you for all that you've done. Form us into the image of your Son. Make us more like Jesus. Not because we are more like Jesus to earn our salvation, but we have become more like Jesus because we are saved in him. Teach us this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, we are going to be looking at the preface of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven, which in heaven. And this morning, I want us to answer two questions. What does the context of the Lord's Prayer teach us? As you've heard me say multiple times, context is king when we're reading through Scripture. What does the context of where the Lord's Prayer can be found, what does that teach us about the Lord's Prayer? And who are our prayers to? What does the context of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And who are our prayers to? Last week, I want us to see what the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer does, what the Lord's Prayer is, and what the Lord's Prayer isn't. What the Lord's Prayer does, the Lord's Prayer focuses us on Jesus. In the Lord's Prayer, we see who Jesus is, what Jesus is about, and who he desires his disciples to become. What the Lord's Prayer is, the Lord's Prayer is a guide. The Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms, which we believe in this church, are the best summary of biblical doctrine. It teaches us the same thing that Jesus teaches us, that when we pray, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is our guide. The answer to question 99 in the Confession, or the, in the Shorter Catechism, says, What rule hath God given for our, for our direction in prayer? The answer to use, sorry, the word, the whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. But the specific rule of direction is, is that form of the prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. It is a guide. It gives us direction. And we also saw what the Lord's Prayer isn't. It isn't a prayer for orphans. Jesus condemned two types of prayers, praying like the hypocrites, as we saw in Matthew 6, verses 5 to 6. Hypocrites wanted to be seen for their prayers. Their prayers themselves meant nothing. And the Lord condemned the prayers of the Gentiles, or if you have the NIV, the prayers of pagans, as we saw in verses 7 to 8, who thought that the words that they said were important, or the amount of words that they said were important. But their prayers ultimately were to no one. They had no one listening. But Jesus points out three times in these four verses our motivation and to whom 
our prayers are directed. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 6, verses 5 to 6, because four times in these, or three times in these four verses, Jesus tells us our prayers are to your Father. And if you're if you're a note taker, if you're a highlighter, I want you to underline that. Those three terms, or those three uses. Twice in verse 6, and once in verse 8. To your Father, and your Father, your Father. Because when we get to verse 9, Jesus says, Pray then like this, our Father. Jesus is using the repetition to make a point. And as R.C. Sproul says, this is how biblical writers use italics or use an exclamation point. This is how they italicize or underline something. They said the same words over and over and over. And as I said last week, I want us to look at the context of the Lord's Prayer. We're in Matthew, so we're going to begin in Matthew. We find the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and Luke 7. And although at first glance it might seem that the context of these two prayers are extremely different. But in Matthew's prayer, when Matthew presents the Lord's Prayer, we find it in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount covers Matthew 5 all the way to Matthew 7. Here Jesus is teaching his disciples kingdom ethics. He's teaching them, if you live in the kingdom of God, this is what will happen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. These blessings in chapter 5, reverse the standards of the world. They are countercultural. And this is a central theme in Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God. John the Baptist preached about the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Mark 1.38, he came to preach the kingdom of God. And in Matthew 5, it's all about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Verses of Matthew 5, verses 1, 21 to 26. Jesus looks beyond murder at the anger that drives us to break the sixth commandment. In verses 27 to 30, Jesus explores the lust of the motivation of adultery and the heedless divorce and abuse of that legal right and privilege that promotes us to break the seventh commandment. Then he springs of wrongful retaliation, of loving our enemies. And then look at the beginning of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will, not, then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Does that sound pretty familiar? That's the same warning he gave to those who pray as hypocrites. Don't Practice righteousness just so that you might be seen by others. He told, the hip, he told his disciples, don't pray like hypocrites because all they care about is that they may be seen by others. And then Jesus describes what 
living in the kingdom looks like. He assumes that those living in the kingdom, those that are his disciples, do certain things. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy. Go to chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray. Verse 7. When you pray. And then after the Lord's prayer, verse 16. And when you fast. You see, Matthew is teaching that prayer is part of living under the lordship of God. This is what is to be expected of his disciples. And what's so so wonderful as you look at Matthew's gospel as a whole, Matthew begins his gospel by connecting Jesus to King David in the genealogy. And then Matthew ends his gospel with the Great Commission, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew is declaring Jesus is king of the world. And this is the context where Matthew inserts the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray as those living in the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to be looking more at the kingdom of God when we get to the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. But isn't it interesting that in the middle of this sermon, Jesus is teaching his disciples what prayer is. It's praying while being members of the kingdom. Now, when we look at Luke's gospel, turn with me to Luke chapter 11. When we look at Luke's gospel, we might wonder, or at first glance, it might seem that the context is completely different. Luke doesn't give it, give the Lord's Prayer in the middle of a great sermon. In Luke 11, verse 1, it tells us, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. But if we go back a chapter, let's turn back to Luke chapter 10. What is Jesus doing? He sends out the 72 to do what? Preach the kingdom of God. In both verses um, 9 and 11, the disciples are told to preach the kingdom of God. And then Jesus teaches of the two very real spiritual kingdoms, Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And let me ask you, what was the story of the Good Samaritan about? What it looks like to live in the kingdom. What it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And then we see Jesus sit with Martha and with Mary, and he tells them personally what is truly important. And he's sitting right in front of them. And he tells them, do not be anxious about anything, because I am sitting in front of you. The king is sitting in front of them. That's why they shouldn't be anxious. Because the king has come. 
And then Jesus goes off to pray, and seeing him pray, his disciples desire to pray like Jesus. And then after he teaches them to pray, Jesus again speaks about the two kingdoms. So both of the contexts of Matthew and Luke, although the stories might be different of what comes before them and what comes after them, both of them are teaching his disciples that prayer teaches us to be participants in the kingdom of God. If you are a disciple of Jesus, someone following Jesus, one who has been called as loyal subjects, as a kingdom of priests, this is how you are to pray. This is how we look like Jesus. This is how we pray like Jesus. Jesus said, and when you pray, pray like me. Now, these two prayers are not identical. And for some of you, that might, that might be difficult to understand. And for some of you, you might be very cautious or even very critical of, well, why are they different? Well, we can see in this oral tradition, so oral tradition, Jesus repeats words to show emphasis. We can probably assume that Jesus didn't teach them how to pray just one time, but taught them how to pray multiple times. Because in the oral tradition, Jesus didn't say, hey, pray like this and give them a book, right? Or as we do, when we want to learn something, we look it up on Google and we, we have it right in front of us. The only thing that they had was to hear it over and over and over. So we can just assume that Jesus taught them how to pray multiple times so that they would know how to pray like Jesus. And remember, it's not about getting the words exactly right. It's not about the words themselves at all. The Lord's Prayer is a guide. We aren't praying like pagans. The words that we use aren't magical. They aren't an incantation of this superpower so that when we say something, something automatically happens. What is important is that we are praying to a God who hears us. We are praying to our King. And so what the context of these two Gospels reveal to us about the Lord's Prayer is that when Jesus is teaching his disciples, he is teaching them ethics. He is teaching them how to live by teaching them how to pray. They are to participate in the kingdom. And then get this. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are participating in bringing forth the kingdom of God. Sit with that thought. We often correlate the coming of the kingdom and his saints and priests but do we consider that we have been invited to participate in this kingdom? That when we pray the way the Lord taught us to pray, we are participating in God's redemption of his creation. Because when we pray, we are asking God to work. And he invites us. He invites us to participate in the redemption of the creation. 
The kingdom of God is not tied to the, only to the way that we live, but the kingdom of God is tied to how we pray. Considering these two prayers, it's okay. They're not identical. But to live in the kingdom of God, we are to pray. So this is the context of the two, of the two prayers. We are to pray and we are to participate in God's redemptive purposes, bringing heaven to earth. So secondly, who are our prayers to? The hypocrites and the pagans didn't pray to anyone. So in what ways do our prayers reflect the relationship of to whom we pray? They pray like orphans, hoping that something or someone might hear them. But Jesus' disciples pray and know that the God of heaven and earth, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is also their Father who is in heaven. And this is what the scriptures teach. This is what they teach us, that when we have faith in Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. The doctrine of adoption is a rich doctrine, and it is a major theme that runs throughout Scripture. We see in Exodus 4, and you don't have to turn there, just if, if you're taking notes, just write down Exodus 4, 23. And God told Moses to go to Pharaoh, and he said, Let my son go, that he may serve me. He called the nation of Israel his son. And then Paul teaches the church in Galatians 3.7. We know that those of faith are sons of Abraham. So the church becomes participants in this family of Abraham through faith in Christ. And then Paul also says, For all who are led by the Spirit, the Spirit of God, are sons of God. He says that in Romans 8.4. But listen to what Paul says directly after that. In Romans 8.15, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs. With Christ. Turn with me, if you have you have a Trinity hymnal in front of you, turn with me to page 855. So we have been in the shorter catechism, but I want us to look at the actual Westminster Westminster Confession of Faith. Because if you, if you don't know this, the Westminster Confession of Faith was the first Protestant confessional document that handles the doctrine of adoption. And on page 855, we see chapter 12 of adoption. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness 
and enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastised by him and as by a father, yet never cast out, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of an everlasting salvation. This is what we do when we say, our Father. This is what we know as true when we call the God of heaven and earth our Father. R.C. Sproul says one of the most important doctrines in the New Testament is given, that gives expression to our redemption is the doctrine of adoption. And Calvin talked about this theme of adoption when he spoke about the Lord's Supper. He said, God has received us once and for all into his family to hold us not only as servants, but as sons. Thereafter, to, to the full, to full the du duties of a most excellent father, concerned for his offspring, he undertakes, undertakes also to nourish us through the course of our life. And not, to con and not content with that alone, he has willed by giving his pledge to assure us of this continual liberality. May we consider this. Consider what means it took to be called by God's name, to have the Lord Almighty give us his family name. When I have taught the Lord's Prayer in youth group and when I taught this at RYM, I, I likened it to wearing a sports jersey or a, a team's paraphernalia, right? You put on this sports jersey, and oftentimes it has your favorite player's name on the back. When we are adopted into God's family, we put on the God jersey, the God of heaven and earth. He takes off our jersey, and we put on his jersey. This is the theme of Colossians 3. The doctrine of adoption is the background to what Jesus is teaching his disciples. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. Jesus is saying that not only was he allowed to address God as Father, but by virtue of his unique status as the Son of God, even his disciples, by the virtue of their adoption are able to call his father our father. And this is very unique. The fatherhood of God is very particular. It's not universal. Because what the, in the biblical sense of the word, God's fatherhood is only given to those who have faith in the Son. This is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what does he say after that? No one comes to the Father except through me. This is breathtaking. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were born as children of disobedience. But through our adoption, we have all of the privileges that Christ has. We have his inheritance. Everything, it's ours. And we get to call God Father. This breathes intimacy. The Jews dare not even say God's name. They only said the vowels. 
this God that spoke everything into being, as John always says, ex nihilo, this God in Exodus 20 who displayed his awesome glory and thunder and lightning. And when the people saw this, they were so afraid, they said, hey, Moses, you go talk to God and you just let us know what he says. Because they were so afraid. This God whose glory and might, time and time in Scripture, is revealed as a consuming fire. He made the mountains quake. Israel's fear was well-placed. They couldn't approach the unapproachable. They couldn't enter into a holy place. Enter in Jesus. This holy and awesome God made manifest, made flesh, says, you call my father, father. Notice the combinations of the words that Jesus uses. Our father, an intimate, relational, familial name. And then what does he say after that? In heaven, holy other, self-existent, self-contained, preeminent, immutable, infinite, and eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Jesus is conjoining the transcendence of God in heaven with the eminence of God, our Father. Herman Bovink says, Father, as known through Christ, is thus the supreme revelation of God himself. You can know God no more than to know him as Father in Christ. And this is why the, the shorter catechism says, of the, first, of, the, of the preface of the Lord's Prayer, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface of the Lord's Prayer teaches us that our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence, because he's transcendent. And with confidence, because of Christ, and as children to a father, because of his eminence, who is able to, and ready to help us. Jean LaRue, who has just a wonderful study on the Lord's Prayer, said that Jesus doesn't downplay his father's godness. He emphasizes God's fatherness. Jesus doesn't downplay the Father's godness. He emphasizes God's fatherness. God doesn't become less to become your father. He's emphasizing the character of who he is, of who Jesus has revealed him to be. And we call him Father. This should change your prayer life. Yet, the first words that we utter is our. It's not your father, it's not my father, it's our father. And by virtue of our adoption in Christ, we pray together as a family, communing with the God who made us. We have been reborn into this family. And my next question is, do you struggle with this? Do you struggle or have a problem with calling God your father because of the situation in which you grew up with, with your own father? 
you might not know what a good father looks like. You might not know what it looks like to have a God that cares for you. Who will do anything for you. You might not know what it means to say, Father, with confidence that love will be returned. And if this, this is your story, I'm truly sorry. Because that's how far the curse of sin has gone. I mourn and agonize at the pain that you might feel because of your fractured relationship with your father. The loneliness that you feel, I cannot fathom. But listen to what Jesus teaches us. You have a father in heaven who loves you and who not only will do anything for you, he has done everything for you by sending his only begotten son to the cross that we might become sons and daughters. He has redeemed you. He has reconciled you. He has shown his face upon you, and he has said to you, I will never cast you out. You are his. He is your protector. He is your provider. You are his son or daughter. And we get to come into his presence and say, Abba, Father, we aren't twisting his arm. You aren't too much trouble. He has time for you. He wants you to come to him. You are not a burden. He's not holding a grudge. Because the judgment of his consuming fire does not fall upon you. It's already fallen upon Christ. When Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, in Luke 11, he finishes by telling them, What father among you, if he asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then, who are evil, know what to give good gifts to their children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? This is what John Bunyan says about John chapter 6, verse 37. Our redemption is not a matter of a gracious son trying to calm down an uncontrollable anger of a father. The father, himself, him, the father himself ordains our deliverance. He takes the loving initiative. The father gives us to the son, not haggles over. It is the father's deep delight to freely entrust rebels into the gracious care of his son. When our God looks at you, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. The Bible tells us he is the father who, when he saw his prodigal son returning, had compassion and ran to embrace him. He brought him the best robes. He gave him his jersey and put the family ring on his hand and threw a party because the son that was dead was now alive. And if you do have a great father, know this, you haven't seen anything yet. This is the great contrast and continuity. 
Everything bad about our father, God isn't. Everything good about your father, God is even better. And the truth of the matter is that our father has done everything for us in Christ. He has done all the work. And he has given us the son that we might become sons. Now, let's be honest. Most of us, when we pray, we find ourselves in kind of a mess, wanting God to get us out of it. Sometimes we treat God like a vending machine, as if we have to pay some sort of due, whether we go to church or read our Bibles or pray more to get him to listen to us. But the problem with this prayer is that we don't know who we're praying to. We don't know that we are praying to God, our Father, who is in heaven. Any questions? Great. Well, let's pray. I'm, I'm finishing three minutes early. So, let's pray. Our Father. Lord, may we pray that this morning with a renewed understanding of what it cost you to give up your own son, that we might call you Father. That we don't come into your presence afraid, but we come into your holy presence because of Jesus. Lord, prepare us as we worship together. May we understand your holy holiness, that you are great, that you are a consuming fire, but because of Jesus, we enter the throne of grace with confidence. Bless us today. Keep us safe. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.